Hi, how's it going, everybody? And welcome to the Debutify podcast, the premier e-commerce podcast brought to you by Debutify. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and joining me today is Matt Ranta, partner and head of practice for Nimble Gravity, which provides data-driven digital solutions for e-commerce companies. During our conversation, Matt and I talk about pragmatic data science, implementing data-driven solutions, competitive intelligence tools, and his experience with acquisition. Here's our interview now. Matt, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Alex. I really appreciate it. It's a great opportunity to chat with your audience. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have a blast here. So you're kind of in a field that we don't talk about much, and that is data science. So we'll start with your company, Nimble Gravity. What is that? What does the company do? Can you give us a bit of background there? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Nimble Gravity is a consultancy, and we're passionate about the power of data, and we apply that across several different areas. So those would be data science, as you mentioned, e-commerce and digital transformation, which I'm the head of practice for at Nimble Gravity. And then we also have analytics and BI, global engineering and strategy. And global engineering, just to clarify for folks, is what we like to think of as nearshoring or offshoring, as people have traditionally framed that up. But instead of focusing on whether that's in one part of the world or another, we focus on where the talent for, for that job actually is and then try to geographically locate that as close to the client as possible. So that's what we mean when we say global engineering. Global engineering. That's awesome. So your your website defines, you know, the company as using pragmatic data science. Mm-hmm. W- what is that? Do you mind explaining what that means to anyone that might not know? Well, pragmatic marketing, pragmatic data science, um, pragmatism in, in general is just an approach that's that's sensible and measured and that is tracked and built upon as you go along, right? So it's not dynamic, it's not crazy. It's not off the wall. It's not uh, inconsistent, right? Yeah. It's it's measured and it's a very sequential process that one would go through in, in building on experimentation and building on testing and understanding learnings and where you have failed and succeeded. And then following those successes and expanding on those, right? And making sure that you are doing more testing in that area, that you're doing more marketing that looks in that fashion, that you are taking that successful data science experiment and turning it into actual insights that are being used by the business, whatever it might be. No, that's great. So you're finding different ways to be make that stuff useful, you know? So Absolutely. you help extract relevant business data via testing and pilot projects that are typically, I think your website says, completed in 90 days or less. Yeah. Can you peel back the curtain and tell us kind of what that process looks like? What What's kind of the data you're looking for? What are you trying to learn from it? Yeah, it can be highly varied in, in what we're actually looking for. And it depends upon the type of engagement that we're looking at. So we might be doing something um, like due diligence for a, a merger or an acquisition where we're looking at a business from the outside, trying to understand how they're operating things. And that's typically a very fast process. And we'll look at the totality of their e-commerce operations. We might look at how they're you know, doing their social media marketing, their paid search, uh, any number of things and then present opportunities to the business that's looking to acquire or merge with somebody as a target where they can drive significant growth and impact when they come in and build a model. That, you know, it takes a a couple of weeks to do uh, something like that. You then might also have somebody that you're engaged with deeply as a client, right? And say, for instance, you're running A-B testing inside of their organization. In that instance, you're going to come up with a series of hypotheses that are going to become tests. Maybe we should 
use this type of picture. Maybe we should have a different call to action. Maybe we should put a call to action button in a different place than it is. Maybe we should have a you know a social proof statement about uh, customers who have also bought this and and how they actually feel about that. And then you start to iterate on that and you go out and actually execute those things and put them into play inside of an A/B testing environment and prove that out for a client. Right? Um, it could be something that is even more sophisticated, uh, looking at launching an entire website. Uh, redoing an entire platform and having a, a digital transformation, moving from one technology set to another. Uh, and sometimes those will extend uh, quite a bit longer. Typically for you know a lot of our engagements, they are done in sprints like you would do for a development cycle, right? When you're writing software or code. And we're looking at creating an iterative process where you're constantly building on those things one after another. So you're aligned with development. You're aligned with those teams that are rolling out code changes to websites. And you're doing that from a testing perspective as well and and syncing up with them and working on those iterative cycles. So do you guys help with implementing these recommended programs and services or or is your team really more responsible for the strategy part of things? Yeah, I think more often than not, we wind up being fairly responsible for the strategy versus the implementation, but we do both. And it really depends on what the client is looking for. In a lot of instances, we'll have top tier private equity companies that are looking for recommendations about a business, or we'll have people who are just launching their first business, their founders, and they're looking for, you know, growth plans and and how they can look at the, the future couple of years of their coming product. Then if you're talking about somebody who's looking at their an actual business, their operating operating, they're running A-B testing. In those kinds of scenarios, we are actually doing executional work and have staff embedded in the systems that those companies are using on a day-in, day-out basis. And that would make sense. You'd hate to give people these wonderful strategies that you've developed based on all this research that you've done. And then they kind of drop the ball um, after all that time and effort. So I could imagine you wanting to see that to completion. Yeah, yeah, we really do like to to build things out to the, to an initial stage. We're not necessarily going to be operators of a of a solution for a very long term period, right? Years on end, but we love nothing more than to build a strategy, come in and help the customers set that up, execute it, get it up and running, and then really kind of train them how to do what we've done and, and hand over the keys to their new car, so to speak. And part of these recommendations that you've explained in the past is how you implement AI generated recommendations directly into you know, the line of business for better and faster decision-making. Does that take away the ability of creative problem solving or, you know, how, how, how does that exactly work properly? Uh, well, when you're talking about AI solutions, um, you're not necessarily degrading the creative process uh, in, in any way, shape or form. I think you could look at what's going on right now with the you know prevalence of information about chat GPT and how everybody's talking about that and thinks wonderfully of it and it's it's an amazing technology and it totally is right. But if you and I go and ask it the same question, if a hundred people go and ask it the same question, is it giving a hundred unique answers or is it giving a hundred pretty derivative answers of one another and are they're highly similar and so. Is that really the creative part of the process or is the creative part of the process thinking up how you're going to phrase an instruction set, how you're going to phrase uh, a question, how you're going to tune training, how you're going to set up these models and then 
do those inputs that get into it and make sure that those are are really where the creative part of the process is coming and, and going with that along along the way. So I, I would argue that when you're starting to put you know AI into the conversation, uh, there's still a high value of creativity up front. Uh, it maybe just shifts where the creativity is happening uh, versus uh, more traditional methodologies. And to build on kind of what you're saying, Matt, is a little bit of what I'm hearing is when you get to take, you know, that extra time instead of having to delicately figure out all of these different solutions and instead you have an AI doing that, you can spend your time more properly to develop creative solutions in an, in another way instead of having to deal with, say, copywriting or something like that. Sure. Yeah, you, you can do that. You know, I would caution people against utilizing the direct outputs of, say, copy generating AIs mm -hmm. like ChatGPT or Jasper or copy.ai for the reasons I just mentioned, right? You're still always going to want to go and look at those and, and say, is this in my voice? Is this phrase the way that I would want it to be done? Uh, does, you know, does this actually make sense? Would I make these recommendations, right? You still have to review it. I don't think that you're ever going to find a scenario where you should just, and, and I'm using that word should very specifically, where you should just release that without those kinds of checks and balances, right? Obviously you could, you could make that choice, but I personally don't think that that's ultimately going to be the best use of either those systems or the best practice for people as we move forward in time. Sure. You don't, you don't want to be totally hands-off by any means. Absolutely not. So are, are expensive, competitive, intelligent tools like that worth the price of admission, essentially? Because I know they can be pretty costly. Well, if you're talking about those copy generating um, AI platforms, I, they're absolutely um, you know worth their value, in, in my opinion, for what they do to increase the ability for somebody at high speed and high volume to create outputs. If you're talking about actual market intelligence tools like, say, an SEM rush or a similar web or these tools that give you insights onto what your competition is up to and how they are uh, placing ads, where they're placing ads, where their traffic is coming from, where they're getting backlinks, where they're not getting backlinks, where do opportunities exist? I would say that those competitive intelligence tools are worth their weight in gold, quite honestly, for, for an e-commerce operator, because they're going to specifically point to you the ways that others have had success that you can go and have success, right? And they're also going to point out areas that one might refer to as blue ocean, uh, safe areas in the, in, in the water, right? Where there aren't a bunch of sharks, where there isn't a bunch of blood in the water already, right? And so they'll give you opportunities for keywords that you can focus on. They'll give you opportunities where you might be able to pick up a backlink uh, that only one of your competitors has, but not, you know, not the other seven. Uh, they're going to tell you these things that you can't get in any other format from any other place. I would 100% utilize uh, competitive intelligence tools if I were, uh, you know, any e-commerce operator out there. And so I actually use SEM rush at my last job. Mm -hmm. And I don't I don't exactly have an SEO background or anything like that. So I was definitely trying to learn as I go. And I feel like even with my very little experience, it was pretty valuable. But I can imagine to someone who does have that sort of foundational knowledge, 
it could definitely be valuable. Do you think that they're decently user-friendly to any of our listeners who are thinking about using some of this different stuff? Does it require someone who is a, a master in, in being able to navigate this stuff? Or is, I don't know, the UI pretty easy to understand? Well, the great thing about a lot of those tools is, yeah, the UI is really easy to understand. And they're typically filled with um, little you know, tutorial information buttons. What does this do? What's going on here? What am I looking at? Right. And if you look at the, you know, knowledge bases that those platforms have created as well, where you can go and search, you know, how, how do I find backlinks on SEM rush? Right. They have an article about it. They have a tutorial for you. They'll run you through it and, and teach you how to do it. Uh, how do I find keywords that my competitors aren't bidding on or are bidding on? Uh, right. And you can go and, and get that kind of immediate insight for those platforms because it's already readily available. But I think if you're familiar with websites and ad platforms and these kinds of things, that it's going to feel very, very familiar to you from a territory perspective. No, that's great. I think that's really solid advice. We talked a little bit, I guess, before the show. What specifically are toxic backlinks? And, and why is it important to pay attention to them? Yeah, so that's a great question. So toxic backlinks are like bad friends, right? So your website has a reputation and your reputation is based upon the people that are referring links to you and thereby referring traffic to you, right? And so if you have a poor reputation as a website, you're a link farm, you're a spammer, uh, you don't have any value, your content is you know duplicative, if not downright plagiarized, uh, and you're you're a bad domain, so to speak, but you're referring a link and thereby traffic to somebody else's e-commerce operation, a good domain, uh, then what happens is the search engines look at all of that and they say, oh, well, that website's kind of hanging out with some bad actors and we don't want that. We don't trust that. And so what you can do is you can go into Google Search Console or other webmaster tools and utilize those to then disavow the connection between your two sites, right? There's plenty of tutorials out there. You can look up how to disavow backlinks in Google Search Console and you'll you'll find a hundred, you know, how-to step throughs on that. Uh, but it's a very simple process. You basically just go and say, we don't want, you know, that link to be credited into our profile, essentially, and thereby you're kind of removing that bad reputational connection uh, from your SEO profile. And I highly recommend that people do this on the regular. Uh, it's just kind of one of those administrative tasks that you could you know, sign up on your calendar for, hey, every Monday morning, I'm going to go check out what bad backlinks I have and disavow them and, and be done with it, right? And then tools like SEMrush and others will actually even uh, help you with that process. And they can automatically kind of point those out to you and you can, you can go and find them and, and take care of them. Is that something that you that you found in doing, you know, some some data research and and insight? Is that a lot of companies didn't know that they had these, didn't know how to solve it, or you know, the importance of it? Is that something that you have found personally? 
yeah, in so, nimble gravity. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to stomp on the your question there by talking over the top of you, but yeah, it, it absolutely is. I've seen this across hundreds of sites. So I, you know, I'm constantly doing research and and looking at competitive sets um, when we're doing uh, diligence work. And I'm seeing that uh, along with many other things as being very common areas where people could be improving their performance. So the thing that you have to remember about uh, SEO ranking factors is that there's 200 or more factors that go into SEO ranking. They include things like your authority score, the way you know keywords are used on the page, the speed of your website, any number of things. And one of those things is the toxicity of your domain and then how that kind of reputational rank goes. And when you're playing the game of how do I get ranked better than my competitor, you want to try to tackle any of those 200 things that you can, right? Some of them are more impactful than others, but if you and your competitor are all doing the same top 20, but they've given up after that and you keep going and you do five more, you do 10 more, you do 50 more, your rankings are going to go above theirs, right? And you're going to get more traffic. Yeah, so the top three SEO rankings on a, a web page, search result page, those are going to get the most traffic. And that's where you want to be. And you're only going to get there is if you start executing across the board, not only on domain toxicity, but on things like core web vitals, the speed of your site, all these kinds of things. Now, the little things add up. Absolutely. I think I think that's extremely valuable. So nowadays, there's kind of, I'll call it a rise in skepticism. Some a spout will say like fake news and there, how there is there can be a spread of misinformation you know frankly from my perspective i think that the skepticism is just as unhealthy as the misinformation while i think that skepticism can be healthy i think you know pointing at something and trying to do your own your own research doesn't always have as much value as it could that said there are do-it-yourself kind of entrepreneurs who attempt to conduct their own research. Do you believe that reliable data is currently more or less valuable because of that skepticism and do-it-yourself mentality? Oh, interesting. That's a that's a super interesting question. I had a conversation with an Uber driver that was of a similar vein recently about uh, science education and scientific methodology and kind of experimentation and understanding, you know, how to create that knowledge within the greater population. And it ties in well with what you're talking about with reliable data, reliable research methodologies, skepticism, and and kind of, you know, some trends that are uh, occurring across the globe and in, in what people are, are, are willing to believe and, and not believe. I don't know that I'm necessarily an expert in, in that area, but I think that there are a lot of good sources of very reliable information on the internet. And I think that in aggregate, things like clickstream data, uh, what people are clicking on, where they're going, what they're visiting, what they're reading, what the popularity of, of those things are, provided that they're well vetted, and accredited, you can point to things that are reliable in their reputation, that are reputable, that are um, going to be source data points that are trusted and, and relied upon by great numbers of people, right? And so that data exists out there that points to those things. And it also points to things like 
when something's unreliable, when it's been potentially fabricated, these kinds of things. And you can do you can do simple research on your own, which I would encourage, right? So when was the website that you're looking for doing your research on founded? Was it started up five days ago or was it started up 15 years ago? Right. How much web traffic does it have? What, you know, who's linking to it? Right. Is the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and, you know, 60 Minutes linking to this article? Uh, or is it a bunch of extremists on one side or another of an issue? And they're the only people that are linking to it. And website was launched two weeks ago. Right. So those are the kinds of things that you can do foundationally to vet that kind of information, whatever it might be, and understand it better. You can always follow the data. Right. Like, you know, criminal investigations, FBI, people are always talking about following the money inside of crimes online. You can always follow the data and it'll point you to the truth. No, that's that's great. I just I, I like I don't know. I like the idea of digging behind the philosophy of the data science and kind of mm-hmm. what you do as much as the material as well, because we do live in a in a society where people are going to do it themselves a lot of times before they probably get to you. And they're like, man, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Matt, can you help me out? That way you can kind of pitch them your philosophy. So I don't know from from a data perspective what are what are what are some more simple things e-commerce brands can do to improve their performance. From a simple data perspective, there's quite a few things, right? So first and foremost, you have to track what you're doing, right? So hopefully everybody that is in your audience is using at least a a free analytics platform, free Google Analytics or or something of that nature that gives them at least basic information about things like what pages did somebody exit my website from? How long did people stay on this page? What's the conversion rate? What's the average order value, right? Just the very basics of of any e-commerce operation. And then you can start looking at that data and utilizing it to improve performance overall, right? So let's take pages that people exit from, okay? What are they? Why are you sending people there? Are they in the middle of your shopping cart process, your checkout process that people are exiting from, or are they articles that you wrote that people are finding and, and then ejecting from your website from? So, okay, great. Say it's an article. Are they spending time reading the article? Are they on that page for three or four minutes, maybe five minutes plus? Okay, great. They're ingesting that information. Maybe it's not a loss that they're exiting. Uh, are they coming back at a later time? Okay, perhaps they are. Great. You've you've given them some knowledge and they're coming back to you for either more or to check out or whatever it might be on, on your website. And you have to kind of look at all of those things. If it's in the middle of your checkout funnel, my gosh, yeah, uh, immediately go address what's going on with that page and, and figure out why people are ejecting there and, and what are the problems. Is it your, you know, your shipping options page and all you have is put it on a slow boat from a faraway country? Okay, problem, right? Like you can you can kind of figure these things out and, and start to go after them. As you're getting deeper and deeper into those kinds of things, though, you can start to take all of that data that you've collected over the years and you can start to do modeling on top of that, whatever that modeling might be. Uh, you could look at causal modeling. Uh, you could look at you know just doing regression analysis against data sets that exist for things like 
fuel prices or housing starts or any number of things like that and see if there are impactful data sets that exist outside of your operation that have high correlation and or potential causal impacts on what your business is doing, right? So I've done that in the past. I've looked at both housing starts and fuel prices as they related to the major appliance market and what that did for the major appliance market and how that predicated sales for a consumer electronics and appliance retailer in the state of Montana. So it's it's absolutely things that you can do, but the base level, get in and start tracking and, and playing around and digging into these things. Yeah. So you can get kind of like a baseline on on why are people leaving here now, you know? Yep. Yep. No, that's great. So I, I kind of want to switch switch gears a little bit to maybe your personal journey. So, sure. you know, you were the CEO of your own digital growth consultancy, Ranta Digital. Is that is that correct? I was, yeah. Okay. So that was also recently acquired by Nimble Gravity last month. Can you kind of break down that timeline for me and and, and how that shook out? Because that's got to be pretty advantageous to you. Uh, my friend. Sure. Yeah. The acquisition closed last month. Uh, and everything had started uh, more than a year ago at this point in time uh, when I originally joined Nimble Gravity. You know, really that decision was actually predicated on, I, I've known all these guys for a really long time. We worked together at, at previous jobs and we were constantly kind of working on the same clients in adjacent areas. I was doing e-commerce and growth marketing. They were doing data science and engineering, whatever it might be. And uh, we saw the opportunity to, to, to join forces really and kind of strengthen both both sides of the equation, so to speak. So that was why I, I made that move. But you know, obviously, I've been in, in e-commerce now for almost 25 years at this point in time, going all the way back to 1998, working in uh, vans, uh, electronics and, and appliances in, in Montana and helping them you know, expand their e-commerce operation. Uh, they've been doing it for a little while when I, when I started with them, but I helped them write the initial databases that powered their website. Uh, I worked in uh, you know, the marketing and, and sales of, of that environment and eventually became uh, the head of marketing for the entire organization there. But that's really where I got my start in e-commerce. And that was at a time you know, back in the late 90s where I literally remember having conversations about Hey, you got to check out Twitter or are you, are you on Facebook? And like at the time it was like, yeah, they're cool, but I don't know how we're going to use them. And like, you would just walk away from them for a month or whatever, because you're like, this doesn't have any growth potential yet uh, for us. Uh, how do we do paid search? How, you know, how are we getting listed on all these aggregating websites like shopping.com or bizrate? And, and how are we best selling through those? Like it was literally the wild west of, of internet marketing back at, back in that time frame, And I was fortunate enough to get in with a business that allowed me to kind of figure it out on the fly because that's what everybody was doing, fortunately. Uh, but they trusted in me and I was able to grow there and then moved into jobs where I created websites for franchisees of Cricket Wireless to order fixtures on uh, and helped launch iPhone into prepaid wireless for the first time in the United States. And then went into B2B e-commerce, working at Aero Electronics and operating a marketplace platform that had 15 billion gross merchandise value. It had 
had two and a half to three million SKUs on it at any one time, sold into 156 different countries. That was crazy and fun. And then went into the mobile world. And in mobile, I was working here in Colorado for a company called Ad Action Interactive and helping them with mobile MarTech and mobile marketing and helping get you know games and applications installed and uh, engaged with for uh, their parent companies. So it's been a fun ride for sure. But ultimately now I, I'm taking all that experience and pouring it into uh, helping others grow their businesses. No, that's great. So how how is the, um, I mean, you have a heck of a resume for sure. How has the acquisition impacted you? What have you kind of learned from that? Is that the first time that's happened? Uh, it's the first time uh, I started my own. Well, I, I take that back. It's the second time I started my own my own business. The first time I just kind of closed up shop and, and walked away from it. It's the one and only time anything that I've founded has, has been uh, acquired in, in any way. What I would say that I learned from it is quite honestly, the... I was super fortunate and, and lucky. It really wasn't necessarily a matter of me grinding like some people do, right? And, and building their business up, right? It, this was more a matter of me having a certain set of expertise that I had been able to collect over the years and knowing the right people and them wanting to have me become a part of their business. This was not the traditional story of somebody who's, you know, put their blood, sweat and tears into something for a decade or more and and finally finally had things grow. I just happened to be very lucky and fortunate that that my skill set was desirable to a, another business. That's amazing and and unlike toxic backlinks you were surrounding yourself with some good people, it sounds like. I like to think that I have surrounded myself with some amazing people over the years. And uh, a lot of the folks who uh, I have been fortunate to work with, for, alongside are incredible people in their own right and have done nothing but help to contribute to my success as well through their knowledge transfer, their mentoring, their support, et cetera. That's amazing. So, you know, our final question that we usually ask is with the time management that it requires to work in e-commerce, it's long hours, it's stressful, it's chaotic, it's unpredictable. I find that it's pretty important to have a healthy work-life balance to retain your sanity. So Matt, what are some of the things that you do non-e-commerce related in your off time, hobbies, interests, that sort of a thing to retain your sanity? Absolutely. So the very first thing I'll say, it's neither a hobby or, or you can maybe classify it as an interest, but I am a hardcore user of the focus functions within my iPhone, uh, which allows me to essentially filter out uh, at certain times of the day on certain days, what is getting through to me from a notification standpoint, right? So I'll do things like at certain hours of the evening, my phone basically shuts down and becomes only for personal use. Certain people can get through if they really need to reach me or if there's major problems going on with with a job, but it'll automatically kind of turn off my email notifications. It'll silence apps that are work-related, like say a Slack or Teams or something like that. 
right? Doesn't mean I'm not checking in, but it means that I'm reducing the anxiety around those notifications and those emails coming in at 11 at night or, or whatever it might be. So there's that to start with. And then on top of that, what I would say is I play soccer uh, several times a week and I awesome. also coach, coach soccer. Uh, I've loved it all my life. It's been a fantastic way to uh, meet people, make friends. And I am blessed with the fact that I have friends all over the world uh, due to soccer, to playing with them for years in college or whatever it might be. And then I also play guitar. I love nothing more than even if it's just for five minutes, picking up the guitar every day and keeping the fingers going and um, playing a riff or a song or, or whatever it might be. And it's a way to just kind of disconnect and do something fun. No, that's amazing. I, I actually start my season of indoor soccer tomorrow. So, oh, nice. you know, fingers crossed. It's something that I totally agree with. I love the ability of camaraderie, teamwork, you know, 11 people all working toward the same goal. It, it yep. has a lot of use in the real world, I find. And, you know, kind of with same thing with music and I don't know, team sports is I feel like I zone out. I don't really think about anything else except being in the moment. And, and that's, I, I think, the real good proper use of free time, you know, quality time with family and stuff like that is is just being able to be present because we're often yep. either thinking about something in the past, how we screwed up, how we could have done something better and or looking to the future and being stressed out or having anxiety about something down the road. So, I don't know, all, all three of those things are are really nice to hear. I just appreciate you answering that question honestly, Matt. So, thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, more than happy to. Yeah. So, anything you uh, anything you'd like to plug before we head out? Uh, if people are interested in getting in touch with me, it's uh, easiest to do on nimblegravity.com or they can connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, it's just under my name, Matt Ranta. Uh, more than happy to do both. But outside of that, uh, we love uh, solving hard problems, uh, difficult challenges for companies, and uh, taking a crack at them. And uh, we totally believe that data is greater than opinions, and we hope you do too. I would just encourage your audience to go out there and test something, test a new idea, test a, you know an A/B test on their website, whatever it is. Just always be testing stuff. Go for it. Amazing. Send Matt your problems. The more difficult, the better. <laughs> we really appreciate your time, Matt. It's been an absolute blast. Hopefully, our listeners uh, get something out of it. And until next time, my friend. Thanks again. Yeah. Thank you. Take care. I'd like to thank Matt Ranta for joining me on the show. And for more information about Matt, you can connect with him on LinkedIn. To learn more about Nimble Gravity, you can visit their website, nimblegravity.com. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in. And we hope you come back to find new episodes being published every Tuesday. Until next time. <laughs>